And tonight we're in the second chapter, and we're looking at verses 15 through 17. And I want to remind you again of the significance of this portion of Scripture. First uh, John is a letter that was written to church members who had received the truth of the gospel, and they had been taught the deeper doctrines of God's Word, but there were false teachers there who had infiltrated the church, and they were denying those very fundamental doctrines that John teaches here. Now, they were very worldly men, and they were living wicked lifestyles. And at the same time that they did that, they claimed that they were in fellowship with God. And so John knows about this problem, and he fires off a letter to these people, and without introduction, without salutation, without any uh, development here, with a no-nonsense style, he just jumps right into this and gives a scathing rebuke over these doctrinal issues. Unfortunately, uh, caught in the crossfire are these good church members, faithful church members who are trying to assimilate the information that John is giving them, and uh, they're wondering whether they were included in those scathing rebukes that John gives. Now, it's not John's intention to shake their faith and to make them think that they're not true believers, but what he's trying to do here is to give them evidence of their faith and for them to use that evidence to prove to themselves that they are unlike these false teachers and they truly are the children of God. So 1 John is really a letter that's about assurance. How can you know that you really are saved? And the answer to that question is to apply certain tests. Check out your commitment to Christ by examining yourself, uh, examining your faith. Apply the test. Do you obey the commands of Christ? Do you love other people? Are you strong in the doctrines of the faith? And those are the tests. The moral one of keeping commandments. The social one of how you interact with other people. How do you love them? And then this doctrinal test Uh, The teachings, where are you in those teachings that were delivered by Christ and the apostles? So verses 15 through 17 in the second chapter make up a stopping place where John stops in the explanation of the test. And beginning with verse number 12, he pauses to reassure these believers that he doesn't include them uh, in the rebukes, but he intends for them to find assurance of their faith. So no matter what stage of their spiritual development that they're in, he shows them that God gives us a way that we can have confidence in our salvation. Now, in these verses that we're looking at tonight, there is a further appeal here for Christians to separate themselves from the world, and this is because they are not a part of the world system any longer. And because they're not a part of the world system, uh, because they're Attitudes should be changed, and they're citizens of a new kingdom. Their affections also have to change because they have an allegiance to a new king. Now, if you look here in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse number 15, John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And the title of the message tonight is Incompatible Loves. 
And without much explanation, you ought to be able to see how I draw that out of these scriptures. You see how this applies because the two loves that are not compatible are love of the Father and the love of the world. So these are two loves that cannot be married together. You can't put them together. They won't live in the same house because there won't be any end to the brawl. So these are two ideas that are very diametrically opposed to one another, and they are so much opposed that to say that you love one means that you must also hate the other. It's not that you can love the Father much and love the world just a little bit less. That doesn't work in God's kingdom. It's either going to be one or the other. Ever since we went through those closing verses of the Sermon on the Mount, I've been kind of stuck with the way that Jesus presented things there, uh, the choices between one or the other. I'm kind of stuck on that, on that theme, and it's very clear in the Scriptures that there are two ways and there are two directions, and you can't have one foot on one path and one foot on the other path. There is a decision that has to be made. So there's either darkness or light. It's either good fruit or bad fruit. It's either the broad way or the narrow way until finally Jesus comes down to the end of that sermon and he illustrates it by saying there's a man who has his foundation built upon a rock, his faith built upon a rock, his life built there, or there's a man who has his faith built upon the sand and the storm will come and will whisk all of that away. It will destroy it. And so Jesus tells us, you have to choose one or the other. And it's not uncommon that we find the apostles reiterating those very same things as we go through the, through the uh, epistles. And here, this is what John is doing. He's talking about incompatible loves. You can't have one and the other. It's either one or the other. And he says you have to love one and you have to hate the other. Now, hate's a very strong word, isn't it? I know a lot of parents that won't allow uh, children to have hate in their vocabulary. Hate can get your mouth washed out with soap. And today we hear about hate crimes, we hear about hate speech. Hate is always portrayed in a bad light. But it might surprise you to find out that the Bible uses the word hate and it's a perfectly good word and it is the right word for us to use. There are things that you are to hate. There are things that are not virtuous, things that are not godly. And the Bible says you are to hate them. The psalmist says in Psalm 97, Ye that love the Lord hate evil. He preserveth the souls of the saints. He delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. In the 103rd Psalm it says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. And the 119th Psalm, 104, through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. The 113th verse, I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. The 128th verse, therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. 163, I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Now, I want you to listen to this next one because this one seems really odd. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, he says, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? Am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Now, sometimes it's real hard for us to understand how we can love our enemies, as Jesus says, And then at the same time, it says here, hate those that hate the Lord, as the psalmist says. Now, both of those are in the Bible. Both of those are the Word of God. So how are you going to make those two things fit together? How do you reconcile 
Things like the righteous anger of Jesus in driving the money changers out of the temple with a whip with the words that he said on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, I think the secret of that is what we find here and what John says in these verses, and it's to understand what is meant by this. Love not the world. What is the world? And when we get that answer, we can figure out how we fit righteous hatred into this equation. So this is what I want to look at first of all tonight. We have a couple of parts to this message, and we'll discuss this part tonight, and that is the descriptions of the world. The descriptions of the world. World, it's one of those interesting words that we find in Scripture, and it does have many different meanings. When we studied verse number 2 in this chapter, we looked at the word world, and we had a fairly good discussion about how world is used throughout the Bible. Now, the word is cosmos. That's the Greek word for it, cosmos. And what it originally referred to was orderly arrangement. Same word from which we get ornament or adorning. And when it's applied to the creation, it means the earth. It means that this world is actually the ornament of God. And in the original creation, God created the world with with order and arrangement. And God created a world that was beautiful. He created this world with skill. And it works in such precision that the heavenly bodies that move through space work with split-second timing. The earth revolves around on its axis at the same time it's going around the sun. And while it's revolving and going around the sun, the entire solar system is moving throughout the galaxy at thousands of miles per hour. And God keeps all of that in order. He keeps it all running. Now this is what we call God's ornament. Now as we look at this, we we look at the world that God has created. And this is the world that we appreciate. The world that we appreciate, this is the world in the sense of the planet. We appreciate this world because it's beyond wonder and amazement how that God did all of this. And it really defies good sense that anyone could believe that this physical universe could come into being without an intelligent creator. And it's beyond belief at the way, the way that God makes it work that without, every, without fail every single day, all of this works in perfect order. Something is holding it all together. Well, the scriptures tell us what that something is, or maybe better said, what that someone is. The psalmist says in Psalm 33, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. John wrote in his gospel account, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then in Colossians, these verses that we read this past Sunday morning and for the past couple of weeks, in fact, Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist." Now, there's the answer to our question. What is it that makes all of this work? Here it is. It's it's the Lord. He made it all. By him, all things consist. And what Paul has given us there and what these other verses that I've read give us is a fuller explanation of those very first words that we read in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And so the world is held together. It was created by Jesus Christ. He gave it order. And it's really a beautiful testimony to the greatness of God's power. And God is so pleased with this creation 
that even though now it's marred by sin, what God intends to do is to restore the world to its pristine condition that was at the beginning. And he intends that it will be inhabited by perfect men, made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ, wearing the white robes of the righteousness of Christ. God uh, has created a beautiful world and he intends to restore it to that pristine condition. So this is the world that we are to appreciate. And I think that means that we need to respect our planet. It means that we need to care for the resources that are in the world. And we need to protect those resources for the good of all people. Now, for some of you, that may throw up a red flag. Am I saying what we need to do is we need to join the Green Party? And we need to become members of the Sierra Club or Greenpeace? Is that what I'm telling we need to do? No, I'm saying that we need to be environmentalists, but we need to be the right kind of environmentalists. And I'm going to explain to you what that is. There's a difference in environmentalists because we don't worship the planet. There is no such thing as Mother Nature. I mean, Mother Nature is not the mother of anything. The Bible says that God is the father of his creation. And everything in this creation respects God as the creator. And what God never intended for any of us to do is to worship the planet. Now, he did intend that all the resources that are on the planet should be used for the good of man. And the problem with the environmentalists, most of them today, is that they are uh, evolutionists and, and some of them are atheists. And what they believe is that man is a creature of the earth. And so that makes the earth actually higher than man. The earth is more important than man himself. Well, we reject that with, with all the strength that we can muster. This world was created for man. And God told Adam to take dominion over the earth. And that means that we are supposed to use the earth's resources for the good of man to feed people and to help better their lives. But the whole thing gets twisted upside down when we don't respect the command that the creator has given us. And so instead of the world actually helping man, the environment causes this world to work against man, to to stand in the way of man. Now God put resources in this world for us to use and we need not fear that we're going to use all of them up and uh, use things that we aren't supposed to use and thus we're going to bring about the end of the planet. Now if you think that, then you're not in tune with the sovereignty of God. Because God is going to bring an end to this world. Nobody's going to do it. Man is not going to do it. God will do it. And until that time, God wants us to use every resource there is that's here, from oil to to trees to coal to everything else. Use it all up. Pump out all the oil that we can. Use up all the trees we need to use because God gave them for us to use. Now think about it for a moment, what would happen if we didn't pump out oil. I mean, how many farms would we be able to operate without machinery? How many crops would we be able to raise? And how many people would starve if we didn't use the technology that God gave us and the fuel that he gave us to operate it? Of course God wants us to use that for the good of man. Now we need to be good stewards of what God has given and we need to appreciate the world that God has given us to live in as our home. But we ought not to forget who gave it and what he intended for it. Man is to have dominion over the earth. So the earth is not our mother, it's not our God, and we're not slaves to this earth. So that's one signification of the word world. We're to appreciate the world because this planet that we live on is the mind of God in miniature. It speaks to his greatness and his sovereignty. 
The psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And then the heavens declare his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. So John is not telling us that we cannot love and respect the world that we live in. That kind of love for the world is not incompatible with the love of the Father. And the only way that it could be is when we turn it around and we begin to worship the planet itself. Then the two loves would be incompatible. So we love the world in that sense. It's a marvelous display of God's glory. Well, secondly, the word cosmos has another signification in Scripture. And I'm calling this the world that we affect. We're not to love the world, or love, we're to love, I should say, and not hate the world that we affect. And that's the world of mankind. That's the world that's lost without Christ. And that's not incompatible with the love of the Father. In fact, that's a love that coincides with the love of the Father. John three sixteen and 17 are verses that use world in that way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And we also see the very same sense of the word in 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 2, the, the scripture we talked about for so many weeks. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, since we spent a good deal of time looking at that verse, I'm just going to say briefly on this subject that John 3.16, the word world there means all classes of people. It refers to every race. Every color, every kindred, every nation, every tongue. But it does not refer to every single individual in the world. And it can't refer to that because if it did, then John 3.17 wouldn't be true. Because God did not send his son into the world to save every single person in the world. If that was God's intent, then that's exactly what God would have done. But when Christ came, we know that there were already millions of people that were in hell. And if we look back to them and, and that time, we'd have to wonder, did Christ die for them? Did he die for people that are already in hell? Well, we'd have to say, well, certainly he didn't. All of those arguments we've addressed, we studied propitiation in verse 2. And I'm sorry that there are people that honestly can't see that, but I feel sorrier for people who, with dishonesty and, and disingenuous, disingenuousness, don't see it. And for those kinds of people, I think that they're going to have to give an account to God for being purposely misleading about these doctrines. So the love that we have for the world in that sense, this, this world that we affect, it's not antithetical to the love of the Father. In fact, the great burden that the apostles had for missions coincides with this love for the Father. And cultivating that love was something that was, I think, much more difficult for them than it is for us. Probably more difficult than we can imagine. Remember the story in Acts chapter 10 when Peter saw that vision of the great sheet that was let down from heaven. And there in that sheet, there were all these different kinds of animals. All of them were unclean animals that Peter, as a good Jew, would never eat. And yet there was a voice that told him, said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter protested about that. And he said, you know, I've never eaten anything that's uncommon or unclean. He was a good Jew and he wouldn't do that. 
But the message that God was trying to get across to him was that God had included the Gentiles in his covenant. And so Peter was to go to the Gentile Cornelius and give the gospel to him. And he was to go to him in love. And he was to love that man who was a Gentile, even as if he was a man in his own family. And Peter was required to do that. He was part of the world, part of the Gentile world that was out without Christ. And that kind of love, that world, that's not against the love of the Father. It's commanded by the Father. And any other decision that Peter would have made not to go there, not to do what God told him, or to treat Cornelius in the wrong way, that would have been against the love of the Father. And in fact, we find this is exactly what happened. The Apostle Paul had this very same kind of love. And in Galatians, he wrote that he had to confront Peter on this issue. Now, Peter had learned this way back here with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And yet there was a time when Peter did not treat Gentiles as he should. And so he was withdrawing from their fellowship whenever there were Jews around. And Paul was telling him, you can't do that because those people are in the covenant of God as well. And you're to love them. And if you treat them in any other way, then you don't show the love of the Father. And so this world that we affect is the one that we give the gospel of Christ. It's the one that evangelizes lost sinners and brings them to Christ. And that kind of love we are to cultivate. And we think about that. I mean, how, how easy is it for us to reject that cosmos? I mean, how much more convenient would it be for our missionaries... Uh, one like Tim Ekno, how much more convenient for him just to stay at home? Why go to India and work among lepers that are the pariah of society? Why does Mike Craiglow, you know, he's the missionary I think we highlighted tonight. Uh, why, why does Mike Craiglow spend hours on a boat out in the, in the rivers, the, the jungles of Peru and Brazil, giving the gospel to a bunch of heathen Indians that haven't hardly seen the light of day. Why does he do that? I mean, who are they? In the scheme of the great people of the world, who are these people out there in the middle of the jungle somewhere? Why, why do we have to be concerned about them? Well, we have to be concerned about them because God says we should. That's the command from God. That's the world that we are to love. And so we're to care for them and to give the gospel to them. And that's why we spend our money doing it. And that's why the missionaries go to see them. That's the world that we need to affect with the gospel. That love is not incompatible with the love of the Father. It is the love of the Father. And the problem comes when you and I think that we are far more deserving of the mercy and grace of God than others are. Here we are. We're rich Americans living here. And who are they? Poor Indians out there in the jungle somewhere. And somehow we've got this idea that we are more deserving of God's love. Well, that kind of love is incompatible with the Father. That's selfish. That's loathsome to God. So this is this world uh, that we live in and that we appreciate, that kind of love, love for it is not incompatible. The love for the world that we affect with the gospel, that's not incompatible with the love of the Father. Those are loves that are harmonious with God. So John doesn't mean that we are to hate the world in that way. Well, the third one is the one that brings it all into focus for us. And this is the world that we abhor. 
Not the world we appreciate, not the one that we affect. This is the world that we abhor. And the intent of this passage is that we are to recognize this world and to withdraw ourselves from it. We are to hate it. We are to separate ourselves from it. We are to renounce it. We are to defend ourselves against it as if it's the worst enemy that we could possibly face and to protect ourselves from us as if it was the worst disease that we could ever be infected with. This is also cosmos. But it's a different meaning to the word from the first two uses. This is the world's system. Now we're not necessarily talking about the world's people. It goes much deeper even than the world's possessions. On the surface of it, we might take Jesus' words in Matthew 6 as a clue to where we're going with this. Jesus said, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Now there, of course, Jesus is speaking about material goods. We can't love God and also love our money. We can't love God and make it the pursuit of our lives to get more and more stuff. That's what Paul means when he says that a man who goes to war for God does not entangle himself with the affairs of this life. It's exactly what he means. You can't entangle yourself with the pursuit of the world's goods. But it goes deeper than even that. It goes deeper than what you own. It goes deeper inside of you into the very intentions of your heart, the very thing that makes you desire those kinds of things. Now the next verse, verse 16, delineates it for us. And we're going to go into verse 16 in the next lesson. But it's the attitude that lies behind all of this. The pride, the self-ambition. It's a desire to exalt self, to rely on self. The attention that we want to shower on ourselves it's that attitude that lies behind all of this. So what we're talking about here is the thought processes of the world. It's the world's system, and it's against everything that we're taught in Scripture. Now, if you want to put it another way, it's a refusal to believe that we are anything but creatures that have been created for the glory of God. Here, this type of love is incompatible with the love of the Father. And it's against all the tests that we find here in the Scriptures. This is the world that causes us to reject the commandments of Christ. Love for this cosmos causes people to pass by a man who's beaten and robbed and left for dead. It's the opposite of what the Good Samaritan did. This type of love for the world despises the doctrines of the faith that make God to be above all and those doctrines that seek to give us a God-centered system rather than a man-centered system. This is the love of the world that, that says that we are the center of creation rather than the sun, the S-O-N being the center of creation. We want everything to revolve around us. Uh, this is the attitude behind the greed of materialism. Uh, Jesus said we can't serve God and mammon, and the reason that we can't is not because money is evil, I mean, money's neutral. Cars and boats and houses and all of that is neutral. But the reason that we seek those things is not neutral. It's the attitude that arises from the heart, and it's the one that says, I must assert myself. I have to take care of myself. I have to gather things for myself. I will exalt myself because it's all about me. This is the guy that we read about in Scripture that tears down his barns and builds bigger barns because he has to have more room to hold all the stuff that makes a name for him. 
So he wants to be known as the powerful guy that lives on the corner with all the big barns. This is the same guy that when you talk to him, you can't get a word in edgewise. Because what he has to say is always more important than what you have to say. This is the fellow who may even be a preacher. And he talks about himself incessantly. And when you go to hear this preacher, when you've heard the sermon, you've heard more about him than you have about God. And we throw this one out to you too. It's no wonder that nearly 100% of these kinds of people are Arminians. Where would Arminianism lead you other than being a self-confident, self-reliant type of person? They love personal adoration. And the more that they can get it, the more that they crave it. Now, that love is incompatible with the love of the Father. And it's apparent why it is, isn't it? The focus is all wrong. The focus is temporal rather than the spiritual. And the focus puts the highest attention on being at the top of the heat so we're, uh, of the heap so we're recognized by the world and to have everything the world has to offer. And in short, you can say it's not the ornament of God that we were talking about in the beginning of the message. It's the organization of evil. Now, what God is trying to do is to root that out of us so that we put all of our focus on him. And at the same time that God is trying to root those attitudes out of us, Satan is trying to inject us with even more of it. He tries to put more of it into our heart until we come to the place that we're actually in a stupor. We're living in a dream world where we think that we're more important than we really are. Why else? Would you think that people hate to hear preaching about hell? And why do they diss the preacher who wants to preach about their sins? You know why? Because hell, sin, that's degrading to their psyche. They can't possibly believe that they deserve such a place. I'm too good for hell. They don't believe it. They don't want to hear about it. And yet this is what the Word of God says about them. They are deserving, just like we're all deserving of hell. So Satan's organization is one that always puts man above God, whether you're talking about politics or religion or work or recreation or families. Man always comes first in that system. And so thus John has to write to these Christians so that they don't get sucked up into this world system that's diametrically opposed to God. Now here, folks, is the reason why that I have to plead for better attendance on Wednesday night. Why do we have to do that? It's because of the world system. We've been infected with the world system. It's the very reason why that, that uh, we have to put it in the bulletin each week, that we have a church budget deficit. Why do we have that? Well, it's because of the world system. We're infected with the world system. Why do I have to preach all those messages that I did on false preachers and, and about false professors? It's all because of the world system. It's always against God. And that system will never give God his rightful place. So what we have here is just to start on the verses. All of this stuff is what hinders your service to God. It hinders my service to God. And John has a label for it. And the label is world. Love not the world. That's the label that he puts on this whole attitude. That's the cosmos that John is speaking of. You can't love it. And love God at the same time. They're incompatible loves. These are loves that are always going to get a divorce. They can't live in the same house together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we spend in your word tonight. Lord, we just pray that you would open this up to us and help us to see what you would have for us to learn. 
help us to see what John means when he says the world and this world system. And uh, it's everything that is against you. And Lord, help us to avoid that. Help us to get as far away from it as we can and dedicate ourselves wholly and completely to you. Bless our people. We thank you for their attendance here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.